right, so I'm currently on the phone with Kevin. He's another musician that reached out about the interview series. So I'm going to go ahead and give him the opportunity to introduce himself. Hey, everyone. My name is Kevin Strain. I am a California native and a guitar player, vocalist, um, in whatever capacity anyone needs me to play for. <laughs> I've, uh, I've been playing in church, and I learned a lot in uh, church music for a long time. Uh, but I've also jammed with a bunch of people all over Southern California, whether it's Pasadena, L.A., or here where I live in the Inland Empire, Riverside. And I just uh, I just love music of all all stripes, all kinds, and I'm happy to participate or just be a audience member as well. Awesome. Very cool. Um, so I like to start kind of, you know, in the seminal moment, moments. Um, you know, when did you first find music? And what about it really kind of, you know, spoke to you as something that, you know, you wanted to contribute to? Sure. The, the earliest memory I have of really getting into music is in the early 90s. And, uh, you know, if you remember the, uh, the, the radio landscape or the popular music landscape at the time, it was a lot of uh, up and coming hip hop. You know, gangster rap was, was huge. Um, there was the grunge uh, scene as well. And I was not into any of that, um, <laughs> which kind of made me an outcast a bit, a musical outcast for the, you know, my, uh, my little community. I was in, you know, I was in elementary school at the time or my grade school, or I guess it was junior high. But I remember my mom um, is a musician and comes from a line of musicians. And uh, her father was a traveling singing evangelist. And at one stop, they actually shared a uh, an amphitheater with uh, of some pretty huge musicians. And so my mom, as a kid, got lost backstage looking for her parents, and uh, and they were you know running rehearsals and whatnot and 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 doing tech tech stuff, which I, I assume back then wasn't very complicated. <laughs> but um, but uh, my mom opened up a door, and all of a sudden she said she saw uh, this group of guys in there, and one of them was BB King. And she um, said, hey, I'm looking for my parents. She was a kid at the time. And, and he grabbed her hand and he led her down to where he knew the, uh, the religious people, religious musicians were hanging out. Mm -hmm. and, uh, and she said he was the sweetest guy uh, ever. And he helped deliver this, you know, six, seven, eight year old girl to her parents. And I thought that was a really sweet story. So as a kid, I thought, oh, that's kind of cool. I kind of like guitars. I didn't really know what guitars were or what guitar music sounded like at the time. But I thought, why not? check this guy out who was nice to my mom when she was a kid. Mm -hmm. And so I checked out BB King. And at the time he was, he was coming out with a, uh, his first duets record. I can't remember if it was called duets or not, but I mean, it just blew my mind, this blue sound. And he had a ton of guests on it and I, it was amazing to me. And I was like, wow, this is like really, I think there was something about that soulful, um, part of the music that not necessarily was not missing from popular music, not missing from hip hop, or grunge necessarily, but the blues hit me in a different way mm -hmm. that really resonated. Um, and so from then, you know, I got into Clapton and Hendrix and Stevie Ray Vaughan, a lot of strap players from there, from, from that point on. And I really got into guitar music. And as I said, it was so out of touch with what everyone was listening to in popular music that I kind of just didn't talk about it much. I would retreat to my room and listen to these awesome blues CDs and blues rock and, and all this, you know, music that was, popular 20 years before I was born and, uh, and really vibe with it. I mean, I would get lost listening to this music for hours at a time, this real guitar centric stuff that 
that seemingly I, I couldn't find anywhere else. And that's what really hit me. That was my earliest sort of memory of that. Excellent. So once you kind of did make that connection uh, to that style of music, did you pick up an instrument and start learning guitar on your own? Sort of, kind of. So all of that guitar virtuosity led me to like the Beatles, right? Mm-hmm. Um, because because someone always says, you know, of course, I'm sure you've heard this in your musical journey. Someone goes, oh, you like Hendrix? Well, you need to check this person out. Oh, you like Steve Ray You need to check this person out. And so I eventually ended up with the Beatles and I was like, wow, this is like amazing stuff. And at the time I was just getting into high school, you know, 1996, I guess. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and I saw this one guy and he was playing guitar and he, um, he got a lot of attention from the ladies and I thought, Oh, I want to, I want to kind of do that. That'd be interesting. Mm-hmm. And so I knew that my stepdad had a guitar and I pulled out his guitar and I brought it to him and I said, Hey, can you show me how to like use this thing? I'd love to be able to, <laughs> you know, play it. Sure. And, uh, and he goes, yeah, sure. And he, my stepdad had a really cool, um, like a gospel, he, he grew up in the church as well. So he had like a gospel blues jazzy style sort of thing. And so he showed me a couple of things and I was like, you know, first of all, I was like, man, that's really difficult stuff to, to wrap my mind around. But right. I started to work on it and I started to, you know, put power chords together. And then a friend would show me like a G chord and an A minor. And I would play three chords for like, you know, hours. My parents were always telling me to close the door because they didn't want to hear that progression over and over and over and over again. <laughs> sure. I shouldn't, I shouldn't uh, specify just my parents. It was really my whole family. All my siblings, everyone was like, please <laughs> shut the door. We get it. You know, a G and an A. Yeah. But I mean, that was mesmerizing to me, the geometry of shapes and patterns. And, and I mean, it still fascinates me to this day. Mm. Um, obviously I know a little more than three chords, but, uh, but I mean, it, it really fascinates me how you can loop something and then make a tiny adjustment and have it go off into a tangent of something else completely. Um, that's still, that's, I still love sitting with a guitar for hours if I could, you know? Sure. So how much of that, uh, like exploration do you feel informs the way that you write on guitar? You know, it's strange. I told someone this recently, we were talking about music and, um, and I said, you know, what's really interesting. Cause then, then in high school, I got into like Dave Matthews band, and then I got into Van Halen retroactively, and I was like, what in the world is happening with Eddie Van Halen and this guitar? Like that, it just, you know, blew my mind 30 years after everyone else's mind was blown, of course. <laughs> um, and so I was like, wow, this is amazing. So I would listen to that stuff nonstop. And of course, that was a gateway to, uh, you know, grunge and then to Soundgarden and then to Nirvana and all that stuff. So I finally caught up eventually with the times, kind of. Although I feel like I'm still catching up musically. <laughs> mm. But... Uh, <laughs> But um, I, I, uh, I thought to myself, it's weird because I would start writing songs. Anyone who's open to that sort of thing, you know, says, oh, the Beatles played a song with three chords. I can put three chords together. Maybe I can say something. Mm-hmm. And, and then I thought, um, and then I thought, wow, it's weird. All the music I'm playing is not like it doesn't sound like anything that I'm listening to. Like it doesn't sound like Van Halen. It doesn't really even sound like the Beatles. You know, it doesn't sound like my blues people that I'm really into. And I thought, wow, that's strange. And that's not really manifesting like in my own voice. And it took me many years to learn that people actually will try to, you know, copy and write in that style. I just always thought, oh, I need to like, just, you know, whatever voice comes from inside me or whatever chords my hands put together, that's what I have to work with, which Mm -hmm. I think is a really cool kind of um, like authentic place to come from, but I didn't know any better. 
Okay. And um, so along those lines, um, what was your first kind of steps into actually creating content with that instrument? Not to put it in such like productive terms, but once you had the, <laughs> the, the mindset that, you know, you were making, um, you know, you were creating a music to a certain degree, um, what was the next step to like really kind of hone in and identify the type of stuff that you wanted to make? Sure. Um, so interestingly enough, I kind of felt like this tension within me and it's a tension that a lot of working musicians had uh, even have still today. It's that, you know, I want to make music that's popular, but at the same time, this, this, uh, applies specifically to like the early days of, um, like rock and roll and soul and blues and jazz, where a lot of these musicians were in the clubs um, Friday and Saturday night, and then they would go to church on Sunday morning. And so they had this sort of tension that said, oh, I'm I'm making money in clubs and it's not like a religious environment. Uh, not so much anymore, I guess people feel this way, but then they have to go to church and then the pastor would preach on how that nightlife is bad stuff, you know? Mm-hmm. And this is where Willie Nelson gets his famous um, phrase to his song, the nightlife ain't no good life, but it's my life, you know? Mm -hmm. And so I kind of felt this tension growing up because I grew up in church schools. Um, My, my sect or my part of Christianity is called uh, Seventh-day Adventists. Mm -hmm. And we worship on Saturday and we have a bunch of schools. We really believe in education. And I came ever since second grade, I came up through these schools and I would help out playing guitar when I could put five chords together because that's all you need for, you know, worship music kind of. Mm-hmm. I would, you know, play in our chapels for our schools and things like that. And I would play church music, but that wasn't really what I was into. I, you know, I was into the blues and blues rock and, and anything with a loud guitar. And it just seemed like church music wasn't really making a lot of music with loud guitars. Mm-hmm. And that's what I really wanted to do. So I had this tension in me where I would participate in these church events because I was happy to uh, participate in a way that I felt like, like, Oh, I can play the guitar. This is something I really like to do. And I get to play with other people. And I slowly learned that that's a really uh, amazing part of being a musician is, is talking and interacting with others on your instrument. Mm -hmm. And so I had that going for me, but at the same time, I had no desire to write religious music at all. I wanted to write, you know, in the vein of Jimi Hendrix. And I wanted to do that. And I wanted to, you know, write these blues stories. And I was really drawn to that format, the 12 bar blues and the humor and the pain all wrapped up in one. And I thought these things can be, these things are so separate. I don't know if I can ever reconcile, you know, religious music and also like the kind of music I want to make or what religious people would call secular music. Mm -hmm. And so um, when I started creating content, it was not religious at all. Um, I would make these little songs and, and I felt like, you know, thinking back to my previous answer there, I felt like they were really authentic because I wasn't trying to make them in the fashion of a certain artist or a certain genre. I was just playing what came to me. And when I heard a cool, cool chord progression or a cool riff, you know, as, as rudimentary as they might seem in retrospect now, um, I thought to myself, oh, I can write some words on top of that. Mm-hmm. But I still realize the influence that uh, for instance, the blues had on me, like I would sing in a really bluesy way, um, because that's how BB King sang. And I wanted to sing like that. Mm-hmm. And my friend, my friends who I would play with in high school were like, Oh, that sounds really cool. That sounds really like, like gospely bluesy sort of thing. Can you do more of that? And so that there, I was encouraged to do that as well. But it really wasn't until I got to college, another 
Seventh-day Adventist institution where I started participating more as like a worship leader, because then at the time, the worship music industry, people like Hillsong Church, um, Chris Tomlin, David Crowder Band started to come out and they started to come out with music that was centered around really big distorted guitars. And I thought, oh, well, maybe there is a place for me somewhere in religious music. And I started leading worship because I thought, well, if I can crank up my guitar, I mean, that would make me feel better about participating <laughs> in this religious music. That's mm -hmm. great. And so then, you know, and, and I was involved then, you know, from the early 2000s on in religious communities all over Southern California, whether I was playing guitar or later I picked up bass guitar and would play that as well. But I still wasn't writing religious music until I met this guy who was a worship leader from the town over. I'm in Riverside. And in Southern California, there's a town right across the border from where I am of the, of the city named Corona. And, um, and this worship leader was from Corona and he came to my church and he goes, Hey man, um, I'd really love for you to come check out my studio. I'm a musician too. And as you know, when someone says that most of the time they're talking about the fact that they have a computer in their mom's basement and they have a microphone and you know, that's kind of a common sort of story we all deal with. And then you go and you're like, Oh, okay. This is not something I want to be doing a whole lot. Um, but when I went to this guy's studio, this was before the digital revolution made everything sound like you could produce amazing things inside your computer. Mm -hmm. So he had a ton of outboard gear at his place. I mean, like racks of it, like 30 grand of outboard gear. And I was like, wait a minute, what did you say you did again? I know you're worship leader. And he goes, oh, I'm a producer for Warner Entertainment. And I was like, oh, wow. Okay. And so I started hanging out there a lot because I was like, oh, okay. Like if this guy wants me to hang out, like we'll AB stuff, you know, we'll, uh, we'll record some things. This could be cool, you know, but up until that point, I'd never put together like a record or, um, or a compilation of music or anything like that. And so one day he said to me, Hey, I think you need to do a worship record. And I was like, I don't know, man. I'm not really into that sort of thing. I mean, I, I was fine at that point leading worship for my local community, but I never thought to myself, I want to be Chris Tomlin. I want to be David Crowder or uh, Matt Redman or anything like that. Mm -hmm. I never wanted to kind of be that and, and, you know, have to tour that and all that stuff. And, and I was really conflicted. I still had that tension within me. And he said, surely you have bits and pieces of religious music in your phone. I said, Yes, the majority of it is like secular stuff that I've written down, like little sound clips I've recorded in my phone. But I thought, well, maybe I'll, if the mood strikes, I'll have a little religious music clip here and there. If I ever was in a songwriting session with a worship or religious musician, then I would have something like to contribute to their music or their work or something like that. And I thought that's a way that I can kind of save these and see if I can use them later. But I never expected to build an entire record around him. And I gave him every excuse in the book. I said, dude, I don't have any money. You know, my wife was pregnant with our uh, child at the time. Mm -hmm. And I thought like, there's no way I can pay for a whole recording project. Even if it was a four or five, six song EP, I was like, that still is going to cost a lot, especially if this dude is a producer Warner. Like this is not some kind of, you know, computer only project with your friends. And so I gave him that excuse and I said, dude, I don't have any money. I don't have any music to write. He goes, you can always write music. And he goes, I tell you what, if you bring in your friends to record the music, like just call in any favors you might have, 
um, I'll do the recording, the mixing and the mastering, I'll sponsor the record. And I was like, oh, okay. So I thought to myself, you know, thinking religiously, I thought, well, if God's going to open a door like this, I'd better be faithful and walk through it and do the best that I can do it with what I've got. So I called in every favor I had with every musician friend I had. And we got probably 10 or 12 people on a EP of six songs. And it was very like, it was kind of rock centered, um, very uh, sort of psalmic in nature. It was just, you know, praise God, this praise God, that. And we wrote it by the seat of our pants. I remember one session I was at his studio and I had written the verse and the chorus and we stopped and I, and he goes, yeah, it's a pretty good take. Okay. I'm going to set up for the second verse now. And I was writing it as he was saying that. And I said, all right, I think I got it. Hold on. He goes, you ready? And I finished the, this line and I said, yeah, I think we're ready. Let's go. Let's go ahead and do that. And that was, that was <laughs> mostly how we recorded the record by the seat of our pants, you know, mm-hmm. and that first record you can find it everywhere you can stream is called the declaration EP. And it's my name, Kevin Strain on it. And I was really proud of it. I was like, I learned so much and we did so much and we really crafted this thing and it was amazing. And Lucas, my, my friend, the producer, Lucas Pimentel, he's my worship leader now at uh, La Sierra University Church. He really showed me a ton of stuff. He let me into the process and, and helped me see that it's, it's a ton of work, but it was really rewarding to be able to do all that, do the CD reproduction, which, you know, nobody buys CDs now, but I have a ton of them in my garage. Uh, so, you know, I did all that. I set up the social media accounts. I did everything. And I was like, wow, that, um, it, like, I'm, I'm amazed at the, the thing we created and that process. Like, I just, I learned so much. It was really cool. Awesome. Um, so you kind of, uh, went over, uh, a bunch of stuff there that kind of fell into yeah. <laughs> the vein. It fell into the veins of the types of questions that I typically ask anyway, um, so I, I won't make you repeat any of that. Uh, instead we'll kind of <laughs> sure. just jump ahead. Um, so where can people, uh, check out your stuff and, you know, follow you or listen to the material you're making? Sure. So, um, I mean, the hub is kevinstrain.com. You can check that out there. It has links to my Spotify, you know, Facebook, uh, Twitter, all that kind of stuff. Um, and you know, you can check out the, the record I released, uh, pre COVID, which is my second record. And, um, it's, it's a, it's a really cool record actually about, um, making sure the Christian church knows that, uh, the LGBTQ plus, um, community is loved and they should not be shunned like they have been through much of Christian church history, unfortunately. And so it's a record that I'm really proud of. It tells the LGBTQ plus community, Hey, you are God's children too, despite what the church says in the world. Um, because if we look at the teachings of Jesus, you know, humanity is what Jesus came for. And I, you know, that, uh, that really reflected itself in the second record. Um, and I was amazed that, that, um, I felt like I was called to make that record, uh, because it's a bit controversial. Um, but also very needed because I know so many of my LGBTQ plus friends, you know, are still looking for, you know, guidance on a faith journey and every like religion seemingly shuts them out. And if you look at the teachings of Jesus Christ, there's no reason, no reason whatsoever that they should be excluded. Jesus was all about inclusion. And so I think we need to remember that as a church, uh, church organization that, you know, that it's radical, it's radical inclusivity. 
and uh, and we should be incorporating these people into our communities rather than shutting them out. Excellent. So I'm really proud of that one. Excellent. And uh, I always like to give the person that I'm interviewing the opportunity to put out their last word at the end of the interview. So, you know, just a message that you feel you resonate with. Sure. I think it's radical inclusivity, man. Um, for anyone who's a Christian, it doesn't matter if people don't like you, if people like you, if people hate you, whatever. Um, we're called to love all these people. You know, even people that traditionally the institutionalized Christian church has said, um, you know, stay away from those people, keep those people out. Um, the ministry of Jesus says that we are to love those people, even if they hate us, even if we hate them. You know, there's very specific rules. And if you follow, you know, what Jesus talks about in the Bible, it's it's a real radical life of making sure that everybody's included, no matter if you disagree with them or not. And I think that's that can be hard to do, but it also is well worth it because um, especially if you include the people that the religious community has shunned and done damage to, um, I think we need to rectify that. And I think um, before we move forward, we need to apologize to those communities and make sure that um, we come together to take care of people's needs. And that's what the gospel is really about, recognizing that Jesus did that for us and we can do it for everyone else. And we can stand up with the oppressed and with the people who are shut out of uh, institutions of power like Christianity has become. 